Well, good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Um, there's something big that's happening in our country on November the 8th. It's Election Day. Now, many of you just went in your mind, oh, no, we're going to talk about politics. And uh, we are, actually. But here's what we're, here's what we're not going to do. I am not going to tell you who to vote for. I am not going to try to persuade you for either candidate or a third-party candidate because you know what? I don't care. And the reason that, because that's not my job. My job here is to put forward the scriptures. And so if you'll do this for me, I think I'm pastoring you well. If you will, number one, pray about who you're going to vote for do that. Secondly, if you apply biblical principles, and then thirdly, if you can give, if you, you know that whatever you do, you're going to have to be accountable to God, and if you can do that and lay your head down and sleep at night, you're good, okay? So that's, we need to move on from that, because some of us are like, you're just wait, waiting to go, oh, I know where his politics are. I know right there. Mm-mm, I don't care, okay? Don't care. But what I do care about as a pastor and as someone who wants to lead people spiritually I wanted to know this. What happens after November 8th? What happens when these things, when, when the election's gone, when the cycle's over, when all the political chaos probably still continues? Okay, let's be honest. But when the ads stop being run, what are we going to do? What are we going to do when, when, when our social media page is not filled with pro this, pro that, everybody angry at one another, and all, you know, everything gets solved on Facebook messages, right? It's always good to argue with somebody on social media right? No. When all of that is said and done, how are we going to move on? Because I want you to know something. Our business, the business of the church, is far greater than the business of this country. We got a bigger task, a more holy task, a more wonderful task, a a task that is empowered supernaturally by God. And so here's the thing. We have to move on. We have to be about his business. And it is going to help us navigate this chaos that we're in right now. And here's what we're going to do to find that out. You're not going to get an opinion. We're going to see what happens to this guy named Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. In a, in a season of, and we're going to be Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. In a season of political upheaval, Isaiah has a vision of God. God reveals himself. And in so doing, the veil is opened up and he sees what his task is in the face of all the political chaos that is around him. And it starts out, Isaiah 6, if you have a Bible, turn there. It's in the Old Testament. If you don't, it'll be on the screen. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it starts off with political upheaval and chaos. Can we, can we, have we seen that in our country? Yeah. Isaiah 6 1 says this In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That first verse is pregnant with all sorts of stuff. And get a little history. What, where does he have this vision? In what context does he bring it up? In the year that who died? King Uzziah, king was not his name, king was his title. And he had been in power, you can go check this out if you want to know, I'm not blowing smoke at you. 2 Kings 14 and 15 and 2 Chronicles 26 talks about this king 
uh, Uzziah's reign, okay? Uzziah reigned in the southern kingdom of Israel in what we call Judah. And it actually says, the Bible says he did right in the eyes of the Lord, but he did have some difficulties later on in which he actually offered sacrifices in the temple, which were not good, and he ended up living the rest of his life out with leprosy until he died. And so here's the thing. I, um, it's, it's different than our situation, but this man, he has reigned, King Uzziah has reigned for a long time. He's actually came to the throne and came to power in Judah at the age of 16. And people thought, at a six, I can't imagine ra- ruling a country at 16, right? I could barely drive a car when I was 16, all right? And, and this guy was tasked with ruling a country. And quite honestly, people thought he would just be a puppet regime for the northern kingdom of Israel. But that's not what happened. In fact, God blessed a lot of the things that Uzziah did. And for 39 years, he reigned in Israel. And if he was going to air a political ad, he would have a lot of good things to say. Do you know what a political ad does? It talks about how good you are and how bad your opponent is. So if Uzziah was running a political ad, you know, paid for by Uzziah, okay? If he was running a political ad, here's the things that he would put. He would be wearing, you know, I guess the robe of his day, a real nice one, okay? He wouldn't point at you because that's not very, you know, that's not a very politician thing. He'd be like this. Here's the things he would tout. He would say, you know what I did? I secured our borders. Oh, you know, that's exactly what he did. In fact, he pushed the borders of, of Judah out, and he took the people that were going against them, and he put, he put safeguards for trade routes. And so you know what happens under his reign? The border was secure. Not only that, he made, he made Jerusalem safer. You know what he did? He built the walls up higher. Now, you know what else he did? He was economically prosperous. In fact, there was 39 years of economic um, growth in Judah at this time. He secured the trade routes. He made sure things were working well. And even it says he did right in the eyes of the Lord, even though he had that one hiccup at the end of his life. So by all accounts, this was a season of prosperity and good things. And Isaiah's vision happens on the day he dies. The king who ruled now is different than us, okay? This king would rule, and then we don't, we've had, thankfully, in this country for several hundred years, a peaceful succession of power in which one candidate would trade off to the next, to the next candidate, and so one, one White House would go to the next White House, and so we have a continuation of power um, that has been peaceful. But that's not how it was typically, in, especially in Old Testament times. There was a lot of intrigue, a lot of things like murder, a lot of things that would happen. And so when this happens, when King Uzziah died, everybody was flipping out. What's going to happen to my business? What's going to happen to our security? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Who's going to take control? Is there going to be a war to see who comes to power? What's going to happen in the midst of that chaos? God reveals himself to Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet, or actually at this point he's called to be a prophet. We don't know if this situation is actually his conversion or just his call to ministry. We do know this, that he sees the Lord. This is no small task. This is no small thing. And this is the picture he has. And it's not, it's not, It's not an accident that he sees the day the king dies, he sees the heavenly king that will never die. So it says this, 
These words, are, this is, these words are here on purpose. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. The earthly king was in the ground. The heavenly king is still on a throne. And then it says this, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. And it's not just any throne. It's like a really, really good throne. And here's what it says. He says, he's sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So there's a contrast that's happening here. The human, who, the human ruler, Uzziah, who was a good ruler and who had brought prosperity and brought peace and brought security, he has died. And he is, doing, he is decomposing at, the, at present. And on this alternative, he sees this Lord who is sitting on a throne that has been vacated. There's, there's, a vaca- there's a vacant throne, but there is a throne that has never been vacated, and it's God's throne. And it's, it's, a really, it's high and lifted up, which shows how great and mighty it is. If you've ever, you've kinda, if you've ever seen any business stuff or any, any, any um, you know, television shows about business, you ever notice a lot of times when you walk in somebody's office, especially if the person uh, wants to feel empowered, their seats, the seat that you sit in is a little bit lower than their seat. You ever work with somebody who has insecurity like that? Okay, what's this? I have, okay, and uh, not here, okay. Um, And so you walk in there, and you're sitting in like a child's chair, and they're raised up in their, you know, even if they're short, they're raised up in their chair. The idea of high lifted up shows authority and power. Not only that, the train of his robe filled the temple. That's that's pretty big. That's a pretty big robe. We've been doing a lot of weddings lately, and we've seen some, some brides that have the big trains. And if you've ever seen a bride, try, first off, you try to walk down the aisle here, it's tough, okay? Especially with a big dress and two people. But if you have a big dress, you think about the train of that dress and how a lot of times to get the bride up on the stage, it takes like seven people, okay? Not because the bride can't move, because that dress is gigantic and that train fills the temple. Well, you got this idea here of with this train of the robe filling the temple, this is an expression of how great the king is. The king's high and lifted up, and he's got these immaculate robes that are so big and show his prominence that they fill up the temple. That's a wild thought. And Isaiah sees this again against the backdrop of a king who's vacated the throne because of death. And we see this going on. It says this. Above him, above God on the throne, stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So what we have here is the scene of this king, of God as king, lifted high up and this throne that is never vacated with these robes that show how great he is. And he's being praised by these angelic beings called seraphim. We don't know a whole lot about them, except for the fact that they're called, the word seraphim actually means burning ones. And it's quite likely, there's several reasons, what, there's several um, you know, ways you could go with the understanding of that idea of seraphim, okay? We don't know exactly what they look like, but we do know this idea of seraphim has the idea that they're probably glowing. It's probably from the holy radiance of God. You think about it, how God has manifested himself throughout the years in Scripture that we've seen. Do you remember he was the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night? The, the glory that would show, shown off of Moses' face after he saw God. 
he had to ha- veil his face because it would freak people out of how much he glowed because of his radiance. It's quite likely since these, these angelic beings are there ministering to God that God's very glory is going off of them and they are glowing. You ever turned on your cell phone in the middle of the night? You've woken up? You ever done this before? You wake up in the middle of the night, you want to know what time it is? And for, for me, I keep, I keep accidentally unplugging my alarm clock, which I don't use anymore. I don't know why I even have it still, because I use my phone for everything. But it's unplugged, and it just blinks at me. And so when you wake up in the middle of the night, I don't know why it's necessary. I guess you want to calculate how much sleep you have left until you have to get up. Have I ever done that before? And so you reach over, and you grab the cell phone. And it is as bright as the face of the sun when you turn it on in the middle of the night. I mean, just off. I mean, that is the glory of God in small measure. It's a shining forth. And these seraphim, they are, they are affected by God's glory, and they are ministering to him. They are covering their face because they can't look at him. Another reason why we should think that the glory of God is radiating. So they're covering their face. With two, they are covering their feet, which is, is humility and also trying to cover some shame, if you will. Sometimes feet was a euphemism for genitals. We're not going any farther, but you can idea, have the idea of, of covering shame, okay? Sec, the third thing we see is that they're flying. They're in service of God. And then they're declaring the praises of God. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There's a king who is in the ground, and people may mourn him, and he's gonna, but people, he will be forgotten when the next regime takes over. How many of you, unless you're into Ancestry.com, know something about your great-great-great-grandfather? Unless you're into that, you probably don't know much about that person. They must exist. But they're largely forgotten. I want you to get this. The king... Unless, unless, unless you're a real Bible scholar, you didn't probably know much about Uzziah. And you might have known a little bit if you've read the scriptures, but he's just a blip in the radar. And there's this king that reigns forever. He's on the throne being served by these angelic beings. And he is, they are declaring, he is holy, holy, holy. There was not an exclamation point in the Hebrew language. And so the repetition of words is for emphasis. I know this well because I'm a parent. I don't know how many times I repeat myself in a day. Hey, go over here, go over here, go over here. And he doesn't do it, okay? And I keep repeating myself. And, it's, and listen, I don't get mad at him. You know why? Because he suffers from the same malady I do, ADD, okay? Squirrel, okay? I mean, that's, that's him. So you got to continue. So this idea of holy is for emphasis, God is holy, set apart, perfect, good. That's what the word means. He is thrice holy, as some would say. That is for emphasis. He is holy, holy, holy. He is perfect, perfect, perfect. He is not like us, not like us, not like us. God is perfect in his perfections, and we are not. And the whole earth is full of the shining forth, which that's the word glory means. And these angels are singing this, and get this with with me for a second. This is on purpose. In 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 the political chaos that is going on, this is juxtaposed. This king reigning who has ever served, who is all worthy of worship, who is glorious, is in comparison to the king who is dead and a vacated throne. So here's the point. I want you to remember this, and I pray that this never leaves you. 
as you look at the political situation, whatever it's going to be, because we don't know, however screwed up it's going to be, and the sad part is that someone is going to win. And the, sad, the other sad part about the political situation is not that somebody is going to win, but that, that these were the best people we could find amongst our nation. We have a huge problem spiritually. And I want you to hear this, if you will. Don't let this leave your mind for a second. God is king over all of this chaos. That is the point of mentioning in the year that King Uzziah died. Besides giving it, the idea was probably um, 742 B.C. It was in the middle of chaos in a nation that God called out a prophet And not only that, God revealed himself to that prophet and called him on mission. So I don't want you to ever think for a second that God is out of control. He is in complete control no matter who takes the quote-unquote White House, the throne here. No matter who takes the throne all around the world. Know this, Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He has the king's heart in his hand. So pray. Whoever comes, pray, because God can change it. He's in absolute and utter sovereign control. It doesn't, that doesn't remove you from the responsibility of doing the right thing in the moments and, and taking every thought captive to Christ and taking your vote captive to Christ. That, that is something you need to do, and, and we need to work. But whatever happens, whatever comes our way, know this. Keep this on your mind. You are not out of control. He is on the throne. It is never vacated. And corruption and crassness and the poor state of America is not outside of the the control of God. So no matter who comes to power, the throne is never vacated in heaven. And just keep that in mind. Because so many of us get crippled by the news. You might need to delete your news app. I'm serious. Because some of you know stuff about stuff that doesn't matter, like ever. Did you guys hear about the shark attacks and blah, blah, blah? Nobody cares unless you're in that place. Nobody cares. Did you hear about this? Most of this stuff does not apply to you. I'm not about being uninformed, but if you're having this like real problem where the only thing you can talk about is how bad the earth is and how bad things are, you probably need to delete CNN, Fox News, MSNBC. Let me offend everybody. Delete that app. Throw it out. Because it get, takes your focus on the, off the fact that he is reigning. Do, am I telling you to be uninformed? No. But I'm telling you, you don't have to be in the 24-hour news cycle doesn't have to control you because it just it's just if you hear the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again you're going to think about the same thing over and over and over and over and over again i heard the song total eclipse of the heart on the way here this morning i can't get that out of my head i'm thinking about it right now you keep hearing boom 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 this idea this idea what's going to happen it's going to come out. This is not a call to be uninformed. That's stupidity. This is a call to, to give yourself a break and trust in the sovereignty of God for a little while.
Sometimes the best way you can do that is go off the grid for a week. Delete your apps. <laughs> delete Facebook. Whatever else you need to do just to focus on the sovereignty of God for a week. Because what <laughs> you know about it? Good. Can you do anything about it? Probably not. So give it to Jesus for a little while. I want you to don't ever, just as we navigate this, we think about how we get through this, we see this thing that God wants us to see in Isaiah's life, that God is on the throne, the vacated throne left by this dead monarch, how good, even how good of a ruler he was. There is, there is never a lapse. There's never a time when God is not on the throne in heaven. Don't forget that. Secondly, I want you to see this. It goes on in verse 4. These seraphim are singing and they're yelling, and it says, The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So this is a pretty big-time worship session, okay? House is filled with smoke. These, these creatures are yelling so loud in praise to God that the very temple in which they are in is shaking. That is loud. And verse 5 says, and he said to me, and I said, as Isaiah sees the vision, and here's his response, woe is me, I am in trouble, I am lost, undone, some would translate it, for I am a man of unclean lips, and my people... And let's say, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. A significant, when God is revealed, your sin is evident. Your shortcomings are evident. He is holy, holy, holy. You're not, not, not. When you see God, it becomes evident. And so that's what happens. When he sees this picture of God, he says, oh, Woe is me. I am undone. I am in trouble because I do not measure up to this holiness. And he says this, that I am also, he not only recognizes his bankruptcy, but he recognizes the bankruptcy of those who's around. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. It means the things that I have spoken have been sin. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so his, he is recognizing the, the sin that he has committed. I don't know if he had a sailor mouth. I don't know if he just liked to judge other people. I don't know what was happening. But Isaiah recognized the uncleanliness of his speech, which reflected the uncleanliness in his heart. Then he goes on and he recognizes the uncleanliness in the speech and the heart of those around him. And he says, I am a man of unclean lips and I live amidst a people of the of." of unclean lips, and he says, why, the, why, do I, why am I recognizing this? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Sin is recognized when God is displayed. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim, one of the holy ones of God, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Don't get, don't pass this over, okay? Sometimes we read the Bible and we don't stop and think about it. There was an altar burning. That's where the smoke was coming from. Remember, the temple was filled with the smoke, and it was from this altar that was burning, obviously kind of a praise to God as incense, maybe even sacrificial, because this is definitely pointing to the need for covering over sin, because Isaiah recognizes the sin. Here's the good thing. God will, you need to be, if you're feeling convicted about your sin, you don't need to run from that. You need to steer into the skid, because God uses conviction of sin to bring you to a knowledge of a Savior and his graciousness. You got me? Don't try to get out of it like a caged animal. Steer into the skid for a minute and realize, yeah, it's as bad, the situation is as bad as you thought. 
And so we get to this point where the seraphim flies down to the altar, and with tongs, he picks up a red-hot coal. Think about barbecuing. I, or grilling. You know what I'm talking about? We get those coals really hot. You've never done that before where you're cooking hamburgers. You can't even get near. You know what I mean? Because that grease is hitting it and it's coming up. And you're like, you're try, you, you wish your, you know, the tongs, whatever you're using, was 12 foot long because you're singeing eyebrows. I've never done that. You, that, that is when he gets a red hot coal off the altar. And then is what it says. The seraphim flew to him and... It says, verse 6, when one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, verse 7, and he touched my mouth and said, that's a bad day. You ever, somebody set pizza down in front of you before? They say don't touch. It's a man thing. You might do it, females. I won't let you out, but I just want to tell you this is a unique male stupidity. At least it is for me. It may not be you. When the, when the pizza is there and it's hot, and I said, oh, it's hot. I go, okay, good. Ah! And I put napalm, basically, cheese napalm, in my mouth. Right? This is excruciatingly more hot. Hotter, okay? Took a red hot coal and touched his mouth. There's obviously a cleansing element here. And so he comes and he touches this red hot coal, his mouth, he says, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. That's a lot. I want you to see here, there's every, the Old Testament just points to Jesus, points to Jesus, points to Jesus. This man, he sees God, he sees God in his holiness, Isaiah recognizes his sin, and he is distraught by his sin, and he thinks he is done and broken because he is seeing God. Here's the great news. God comes to him in his brokenness and provides a way for him to have his sins cleansed. Does it, what does it come through? It comes through a go-between. It comes through an intercessor. It comes through one who would come and pay the penalty. It comes from one who would give the cleansing. This is pointing to Christ, that we need somebody as a go-between for our cleansing, and so that's what happens to Isaiah. This coal represents the fact he's going to be a mouthpiece for God. So he has to have his mouth and his heart cleansed before he can do that. And so what does he do? God comes and he makes a way for that to happen. And he touches the coal and it hurts him. But it's a sign that his sins are forgiven and that his mouth has been cleansed and everything has been covered. And it's quite likely, as we mentioned, that altar was probably related to sacrifice in general. It's all pointing to the fact that the people of God, are only right before God because of the work of God through Jesus. And that's the only way we can know holiness and righteousness. And that's why the verse we've showed up here from Hebrews that said, once and for all, he perfected those who are being sanctified, which means he washes us clean. And so we aren't yet perfect, but we certainly are holy, not because of us, but because of him. And I want you to get this. Yes, we need to see that God, don't ever let this leave your mind, that God is on the throne over all this chaos, this political upheaval. But I want you to know this, people of God, you have been cleansed by God. Therefore, you must live holy lives set apart for God because our God is holy. And it is a sad state that we have gotten in. 
that we have decided, no matter what, aisle, what side of the aisle you're on, not to call sin, sin, but to justify sin by saying the other person's sin is worse. That is poor argumentation, poor logic, and sinful. I want you to know something. You must call sin, sin. You must call it that. In fact, Isaiah, prophesying before he, had, he reveals this in his book, in Isaiah 5.20, he says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. You put, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Let me be clear. We are losing our witness because we are afraid to say what sin is. Not what you think it is, but what the Bible has revealed it to be. Coarse jesting, sexual objectification, and locker room talk are sinful. Partial breach breach birth, birth abortion is heinous and awful and sinful. Lying is sinful. We cannot keep justifying things by saying the other person is worse. That doesn't work in any other place but politics. And as a church, we are losing our witness. We have to say it's wrong. No matter what side of the aisle. We, Jesus is not a Democrat, Republican, Independent, Green Party, Libertarian. He's holy. And we lose our witness when we don't say that. You have to say it. Even if it hurts your candidate, you got to say it. But sin is sin. And it woe to us if we won't do that. It is not popular, but it says this. He says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light, the light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It's a hard word, but we gotta, we got to stop making those arguments, folks. And we got to start calling sin, sin, because we don't live for politics. We live for Jesus. And I want you to also know this. That sounded harsh, and it is harsh, because we need to call evil, evil. But we need to love our enemies and extend grace in every situation. You know where we get that? Jesus, Matthew 5, 34, or 43 through 48, he says this. Have you heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy? That was what's been said. Jesus con- gives the contrast to that. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Died in the wool Republicans. Pray for Democrats. Died in the wool Democrats. If you're a Christ follower, Pray for Republicans. Pray for each other's candidate. Do not hate any longer because I guarantee you in this church, there are people that are going to vote for all sorts of people. And we could be divided by that. And we can honestly have a good conversation, hopefully not on Facebook, over coffee, about what, who's right, who's wrong, all that kind of stuff. We, that's, that's not outside the realm of what we can do. But I want to tell you one thing. We are called not to hate our enemies, but to love them. If you have a problem with that, you may take that up with Jesus Christ. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Praying for your enemies is a sign and a symbol that you have God as your Father. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. God is good to those to his enemies. Thank God, because we're all his enemies by nature. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, which could be translated holy, as your heavenly Father is perfect or holy. We are going to have to move forward. We're going to have to move forward in love, and we're going to have to pray for our enemies, whether they be political or otherwise. We have to do it because I want you to know something. We are called to live set apart. We have to call sin, sin, and we have to love those who are our enemies, whether ideologically or politically or religiously. We must love them, speaking the truth always, calling evil, evil speaking the grace, but that's what we must live holy and set apart as our Father is set apart. Remember that. And finally, after his sin is atoned for, there is a question from the throne. Verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord say, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Remember, Isaiah is a prophet. He's called out. This is his calling as a prophet. The God, God on the throne said, who will go for us? He's not, it's not like he is like short of witnesses. He's got all these seraphim hanging around. He told them to go do something. They go do it, and they're pretty bad out. Okay? They, got their face, they got their face covered. They got their feet covered. They're burning. They got these big wings. They could handle whatever he wanted them to do. However, in his providence, in his plan, he uses people to spread his good news. And so he says, who will go for us? This could be a reference to the Trinitarian God. It could, it could be the idea of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit here. Um, or it could just be a heavenly us, like a divine decree. I really think that, that we see the Trinity all throughout the Bible. And he is saying, who will go for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one? And here's what happens. After Isaiah has, been, has seen God and he has been cleansed, here's what happens. This is what he says. Here am I, send me. He's like that nerd in class who always wanted to answer questions. Ooh, 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 pick me. In seminary, it was guys who would raise their hands who just wanted to be heard, okay? Like, I want to tell you something about the Bible, okay? This is, I hear my sin me is like, I'm volunteering because I've seen you. I've seen what you've done for me. I've, I'm on a new trajectory now. You send me on your mission. And all of this message has been pointing to one thing, and I want you to hear this really, really clearly. The divine agenda must supersede your agenda and my agenda. The divine agenda must supersede our agenda, whether it's political or for our life or otherwise. Isaiah probably didn't have in mind being a prophet when God revealed himself to him. He probably didn't even, couldn't even understand what it was to see God like that. He probably couldn't even fathom that in his mind's eye. Yet, God showed up and revealed himself and changed the whole trajectory of his life. Now, he has a pretty bad situation. If you go on to finish the chapter, he is called to prophesy and preach, and no one will respond. That would be awful. Go preach until I destroy everybody for their sin. What? 
Are there going to be people that respond? A few, a little remnant, but pretty much no. Okay. That's a bad job. Thanks be to God, there's a similarity and there's a difference. The similarity is we are also commissioned by God. We are sent ones because he gave us a commission before he ascended to heaven. And he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He says, go from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, and take the gospel. So we have a similar commission that Isaiah had, but it's different in this. His, his calling was to go make people's ears dull and to make their hearts harder. Our call is to go make disciples, and he says the, the laborers I mean, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so what we need around here, around the world, is a church not to get upset about who won, not to get so politically charged, not to see politics as our Savior, but to go, when God says, who will go for me and spread my kingdom and my good news, we need to be like the nerds. Oh, 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 send me. Here am I. You can't, you're coming out your seat. Like, come on. And I'm here to help you. I'm here to, to call myself to this, too, because I want you to get this. We must go and be about the mission. Politics will not save us. It never has. It never will. Countries come and go. Look at history. The gospel of Jesus, the people of God, have never left the face of the earth. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, and he has promised us victory, and we are not promised what country boundary lines will exist. We are promised a heavenly home and a heavenly country. And so I want you to hear this. I want you to be inspired to get on mission, to give and to go, to realize that if you are perplexed and your heart is broken by the situation in America, the situation around the world, you need not sign up for a political campaign or get into politics, the first thing you need to do is to get plugged in with the church of Jesus Christ and be all about his mission and say, here I am, send me, give, go. And I want to give you an example of somebody who did that who is an unlikely candidate. I got a picture for you guys. Some of you will know it. Some of you will not. Her name is Charlotte Diggs Moon. They also call her Lottie. That's how I refer to her the rest of the time. Her name is Lottie Moon. What a name, right? pretty awesome. December the 12th, 1840, she was born, and she died December 24th, 1912. In between there, that dash between the day that she died and then the, the, the day she was born and the day she died, about she was indifferent to Christianity until she was in college. In fact, she grew up in a Christian home, but she really didn't have much use for church, and then she heard um, somebody explain the gospel just one more time, and she gave her life to Christ, and it changed her forever. She was one of the first ladies in the South to get a master's degree, and she got it in languages. She knew more languages than most anybody I've ever met in my life, okay? I've never met her, but she's got about six languages. She's dead. That's why I don't know her. One day, Okay. She knew Latin and Greek and Hebrew and all sorts of different languages. Eventually, she learned Chinese. After the Civil War, she became a teacher and started schools all over Kentucky and uh, in Virginia and other places. Eventually, her sister felt the call to missions, and she went over to China. Lottie, seeing the same, feeling the same call, went and approached the Foreign Mission Board, 
which is now called the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, something we support, went to them and said, I want to go to China too, sent them both over. For 39 years, this lady labored in China, sharing the gospel, teaching in schools, alleviating poverty, all in the name of Jesus so that Jesus might be known amongst the Chinese people. She worked predominantly in Tingchao and Pingtu, China. I think that's right. And I want to give you three, four lessons from her life as a sent one, real quick, that I think that all of us can see. If you want to let, I bet you at the end of that sermon, man, hopefully you're going, yes. I know there's not. <laughs> you, you confirmed something for me that I was thinking. There's no hope in politics. You confirmed that for me. If you go and give, that's a, that sounds good, man. That's alliterated. That's got, that starts with the same letter. Give and go. I want to do that. But a lot of times we leave you with that and we don't give you some examples. And I want you to say, this is a lady who heard the call, here am I, send me. In fact, this just fits, okay? She was listening to a sermon on Isaiah chapter 6 the day she realized she was called to missions. And so she heard that, who will go for us? And she said, oh, 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 send me. And so she went at 32 years old, okay? This was not like she wasn't like 18. She was 32. She gave up a marriage proposal and a pretty good career and moved to China with 500 million Chinese people, who most, of the, most, of them, most of whom had never seen someone, um, a Westerner before. When she was there, when she moved there, she had to learn and remember to love her enemies and those who persecuted her because as she showed up, they called her the white devil. That was her name. Devil lady, devil woman, or the white devil when she first moved in there. Do you know how she overcame that? By telling them how wrong they were and screaming at them. No, that's not what she did. She picketed them and thought they were bigoted. No, that's not what she did. She made cookies. I know. That doesn't sound... I'm serious. You can actually go on the International Mission Board's website and you can get the recipe for her cookies. I promise you, it's on there. So she made sugar cookies and went to people's houses and she loved them until they realized that she was about, she was about their good and then they started listening about her God. So she made cookies while they were calling her white devil. And it took one little boy, this is a crazy, crazy story. This is a little extra. They took one little boy. Nobody would eat the cookies either. She dropped them off and they were like, uh-uh, okay? I ain't taking that from the devil woman. Then it took one little boy who was like really hungry because this village's poverty was all over the place in the 1800s in China. And one little boy was starving. He grabbed a cookie and ate it. And he went back and told everybody else. Before you know it, everybody was like, can I have some cookies? Making cookies for the glory of Jesus. How cool is that, okay? So she loved her enemies. Not only that, and those who persecuted. The second thing I want you to know about Lottie is she was doing her work. She worked to identify those, worked to identify with those she was trying to reach. She was one of the first people, one of the first missionaries to adopt the dress and the and the um, the habits of those she would minister to. She dressed, she if you see there, she looked like a, eight, uh, a lady from the 18th century who lived in a very expensive plantation in the south in Virginia. When she went over there, she went full Chinese. She adopted their traditional dress. She spoke the language, and then she didn't even leave in a westernized house. She lived in a Chinese hut for 39 years. 
She worked to identify with those who reached. Well, how do you, so, so we're answering this question, how do you go? Well, first off, you love your enemies. You do good to them so they hear about your God. Secondly, you work to identify and reach them. You try to get on their level. You try to become all things to all men that you might reach some. And that's what Lottie did. She goes on, and another thing she did, she lived sacrificially. She gave up her comfort. She had a master's degree and a good job. She gave that up to move to China. It was very difficult. There was 500 million people in China at the time. Food was scarce. They were not as economically prosperous as they are now. It was, it was, it was as far out as you could go. And there was no internet, emails. They were having to send letters, the snail mail for somebody to come get her was a boat. She lived sacrificially. She gave up our fortune. In fact, when, at the end of her life, when the Chinese people were suffering so bad, she actually emptied her entire bank account and all of her food to, that she had to feed the people who were in her village. In fact, that actually led to her death. She got so ill from how bad the conditions had gotten in China that she had to come off the mission field. And she got on a boat, and she died on that boat on December the 24th, Christmas Eve. 1918. And she died. You know what they did with her body? It was a Japanese vessel, and you know what they had to do? They didn't bury her at sea. They had to burn her. And the only thing that made it back from China to Virginia was an urn with ashes in it. She sacrificed everything so that people might know Jesus and see the glory of God. And how little sacrifice do we make how much can we make? How much hospitality can we show in Jesus' name? How many dinners could we throw to bring our friends in so they might know Jesus? How many times can we put up with their craziness and their messed up lives, their dumpster fire lives, so that we could win them to Jesus? How much can we do? How much more? How much would it take? How much is too great of a cost? She lived sacrificially even to the point of death. And not only that, she encouraged people to give and go. She was 90 pounds and under five foot tall, and she was a firecracker. She would be one of those people that you would be kind of afraid to talk to, I think. You're like, you're just going to put you, you know. She was a pistol, man. When she died, she was 50 pounds. But as she lived, she was 90 pounds. She moved to China by herself, lived there for so long. She become, in the middle of her term in missions, she sent a letter in 1888 um, to the president of the Foreign Mission Board who was sending all the missionaries, and she says, hey, here's what you need to do. <laughs> she says, I need four people to replace me. Right? <laughs> like, no, I don't need one. I need four people to replace me, and you need to get a Christmas offering together and go all the missions to get people on the field. So you know what they did in 1888? They did what Lottie said. And they, they took up an offering. When she died in 1912, and I'm sorry, I got the dates wrong about her death. She died December 24th, 1912. So in 1912, when she made it back in the box from China in her ashes, the WMU at the time, which is one of the uh, missionary organizations formed by women in the ba in Southern Baptist Convention, they decided to hold an annual offering in her name called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. And if you've ever been in a Southern Baptist church, and we are affiliated with Southern Baptists, and we're proud of what the International Mission Board does, they have been taking this offering up since actually 1888. Now it's been called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. And so we're going to have, you're going to have opportunity. In December, we're going to have a big day here in which we're going to take up that offering. 
and you can give to mission. What does it go to? It goes 100% to taking the gospel to people who need to hear, who have never heard it. We have new emphasis now in the International Mission Board on taking the gospel to people who have no access to it, and we need to do that. But you want you to know something. That is what we need to do going to the ends of the earth, but there's so much to do here. There's so much lostness here. There's people need Christ. They don't need to be one to your political opinion. They need to be one to Jesus. It's far greater. Because if they, if they win politically, it only lasts for four years, eight if they're lucky. But you win to Jesus, it's eternity. I want to call out, this is breaking my, it's starting to break my heart, and I pray God continues to break my heart. We need to take the good news to Hartsville and Trousdale County and throughout the world, and we got to be about it, because that's our only hope, and that is what our God has called us to do, and he is worth it. So we must give and go. Rearrange your life if you have to to make this happen. It'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. He says... Who will go for us? He doesn't need us, but he lets us put our hands in. Who will go for us? Whom shall I send and whom will I go? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. You've already been called. Will you go? Will you go? Let's pray. God, you're good. Your love endures forever. We have this God. It's in these earthen vessels, and we got to get it out. So work in me. Let me rearrange my life to be sent, and help me and help this church do the same. God, work in our lives, we pray in Jesus' great name and for his glory. Amen.